Hi, this is Dr. Otto Janke with the Empire Longevity Podcast. A fantastic guest we have for us today. Fantastic guest. We were just talking, has helped me out. We've, first time we've met, but he helped me out tremendously. One with his book called The Pleasure Trap, we'll get into. But second of all is, it's a fascinating story he has going from 1984, opening the True North Health Center to where he is now. We talked about him being able to reach thousands of millions of people by doing podcasts and, and videos like this. This is Dr. Alan Goldhammer. Great to have you on with us today. My pleasure to be here. So let's talk about you. You were 16 years old. You started to go through a, a, for, a transformation in your, your diet and your lifestyle. What happened back then that pushed you to saying, I'm going to eat this way, move this way, think this way? What happened back then? Well, yeah, I was uh, playing basketball and I, my best friend, Doug Lyle, uh, used to beat me consistently. And it frustrated me. And I, you know, I practiced, but it didn't do any good. In terms of him, he, he continued to get better. So I thought maybe if I got an edge, I'd be able to crush him. And so I started reading some books. I read a book by Herbert Shelton. It talked about the idea that health resulted from healthful living, that diet and sleep and exercise and fasting and these kind of things would make you healthier. And healthier people, I presume, would function better. So I diligently made these diet and lifestyle changes, hoping that it would make me healthy enough that I'd get an edge and I'd be able to beat Doug Lyle in basketball. But unfortunately, it failed because he adopted the same kind of diet. Here we are, 60, you know, 62 years old, still playing basketball, but he still crushes me every time we play. So even though it was a failure, it got me interested in this whole area. When I was 16, my uncle was a physician and um, knew everything about anything. And I had decided that I wanted to get involved in this alternative type of medicine because I met a doctor, it was a doctor of chiropractic, who said it was the best job in the whole world because the patients did all the work, the body did all the healing, and all you had to do is take credit for the good results. And I thought, that's the job for me. That sounds great right there. When I told my family at my 16th birthday that I had decided on getting into this alternative medicine, my uncle was irate. Because he said nobody in our family was to go to a doctor like that, let alone become a doctor like that. He said, better, you should be a communist spy. And he was upset. I thought I was going to witness my first stroke, the arteries sticking out of his neck. Anyway, he, he goes home. My dad, who's like really serious, takes me aside. He said, son, I don't know anything about this alternative medicine business, he says. But anything that makes him so mad and angry, it can't be bad. So you stick to your guns and good luck to you. And so I pursued this and I, I went to Australia. I went to a chiropractic college in, in Oregon. I went to osteopathic college in Australia and I got exposed in Australia to the use of diet and fasting in treating a variety of uh, patients that were ill with cardiovascular disease and diabetes and autoimmune diseases and some forms of cancer. And I saw these people getting well and it just blew my mind. I would write to my uncle. I say, uncle, you know, I'm seeing these patients with blood pressure consistently getting well. He says, no, they're not. I said, no, they're getting better. They're coming in. They're no, you don't know how to take blood pressure. He just completely. So I said, well, no, I'm telling you, we know how to take blood pressure. This get, these people are getting well. Eventually, we decided to do a study really looking at high blood pressure and what the effect that this type of approach had and Michael would refuse to even look at the data. He wouldn't have anything to do. He said, when it's published in a peer-reviewed journal, he'll take a look at it. So we spent some years. We went through 174 consecutive patients. And 174 people were able to achieve blood pressure without the use of medication. 
we averaged an, an average effect size in stage three hypertension of 60 points, the largest effect that's ever been shown in treating high blood pressure. We finally get this paper completed. It's submitted, accepted for review. Two months before it comes out, he dies of a massive heart attack. <laughs> My mother to this day says he died just so he wouldn't have to admit he was wrong. But I know he died because he ate K-foods, the Kugel, the Kreflach, the Knishas, the Blintzes, the high-fat, greasy, slimy, dead-decaying flesh, and ended up uh, with cardiovascular disease. But nonetheless, he never did actually get to see the paper published. I actually had the papers, uh, two of the papers. Uh, one's in 2001, that was in 2002. The first one, medically supervised water-only fasting in the treatment of hypertension. Second one, medically supervised water-only fast in the treatment of borderline hypertension. What I'm amazed by both the conclusions are almost verbatim word, but we're almost exactly the same. And just from the uh, 2001, which is in the uh, Journal of uh, Manipulative Thera Physiological Thera Therapies, Therapeutics, um, medically supervised water-only fasting appears to be a safe and effective means of normalizing blood pressure, which they rarely ever say about that, and may, and this is the crazy part, may assist in motivating health-promoting diet and lifestyle changes. Why isn't this shit all over the place? Why aren't more docs doing this stuff? Well, it is gaining uh, more interest and popularity recently. Now, you know, you know, in past years, you know, recommending fasting to patients was considered criminally negligent behavior. I mean, it was outrageous. And, you know, we've gone from being criminal quacks to cutting edge researchers because now fasting has gained some notoriety. There's people like Walter Longo from USC publishing in uh, Journal of Metabolism showing that fasting can be effective not only as a freestanding entity in helping the body heal itself, but also in conjunction with conventional therapies like chemotherapy, that it can make cancer cells more vulnerable by creating an environment that's not conducive for cancer cells where they hire uh, glucose utilization. You put in a, get into a ketogenic state where there's uh, not the glucose available. It makes the cancer cells at a selective disadvantage and therefore more vulnerable to chemotherapy, et cetera. And it also helps protect healthy cells from the damaging effects of conventional therapy. And so now fasting has gone to gain some interest where people feel like, well, maybe this can be used as a helpful way of giving the body a chance to heal itself. Yeah, we talk about autophagy in here, which is the body's way of, of uh, doing the job it's supposed to do, which is decrease the opportunity for bad guys to rise and good guys to keep on proliferating. We talk about that many times on here. And, uh, and fasting profoundly affects autophagy. Well, and so, you know, there, but it's not just autophagy. There's a number of mechanisms that occur in fasting, some of which are rather uh, unique. You know, the, if you look at the things that go up when people do fasting, oftentimes they're very similar to the things that go up or improve when people use exercise. Right, right. And you might wonder why would fasting, which is done in a resting state, and exercise, which is this very vigorous physical activity, have the same biological effects? But both of them have one thing in common. Both fasting and exercise undo the consequences of dietary excess. And it's dietary excess that leads to obesity and metabolic syndrome and makes people vulnerable from dying, for example, from COVID-19 or other infectious disease or having strokes or heart attacks. Dietary excess is at the root of many of the reasons why people in our society are getting fat, sick, and miserable. And so exercise helps undo that, and so does fasting. So, like, for example, um, you can improve insulin sensitivity and you reduce inflammation when people 
fast. And if you measure things like adenopectin or ghrelin, those increase. Activated protein kinase, also known as AMPK, goes up, yes. which increases mitochondrial biogenesis. So you actually make more of the energy-producing mechanisms inside the cells. Uh, the main fuel that people burn when they're fasting is beta-hydroxybutyric acid. This is a, a fatty acid, and that stimulates the production of something called BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotrophic factor. BDNF is interesting. It's the chemical that's thought to protect against Alzheimer's and dementia. If you take rats, genetically bred rats in a cage, exactly identical, fed the same, everything's the same, but you give one rat a wheel, the rats with the wheel will exercise, and the rats with the wheel that exercise don't get dementia. They have a much reduced rate of, of Alzheimer's disease and dementia. And they realize the reason that happens is because the ones that exercise have higher BDNF, brain-derived neurotrophic factor. They, they think that's what is helping protect um, the brains of the rats from getting dementia. Well, BDNF goes up with exercise. It also goes up with fasting. In fact, with rats, if you systematically underfeed them or periodically fast them, you can double their lifespan just by controlling, even on the same diet, just by controlling the dietary excess that's involved. Insulin sensitivity, you know, when, when you have diabetics, like type two diabetics actually have more, not less insulin, it just doesn't work because there's what's called insulin resistance. There's the, the, the insulin itself isn't working and it's the diet that makes you fat that also causes insulin resistance. Well, insulin resistance is not affected profoundly uh, by most medications, but it is reduced with exercise and it is reduced with fasting. And it may be why as much as 80% of our type 2 diabetics are able to achieve normal blood sugar levels without medication. Fasting affects something called cellular stress resistance and adaptation. Walter Longo did studies with rats, and I mentioned this uh, briefly before, where rats with cancer, 30 rats with cancer in each group, given chemotherapy to you kill all the cancer cells. Well, the problem is you have to kill all the cancer cells or they grow back. If you kill all the cancer cells, the rats die because right. of the toxic effect of chemotherapy. But he took the same rats with the same cancer, the same chemotherapy, but fasted the rats before, during, and after. And all 30 rats survive in this study. And, it, and his conclusion was it dramatically affects cancer-free survival. And you mentioned that autophagy, Yashinori Oshumi won the Nobel Prize in 2016 for his work on autophagy and how, it, how the body's immune system eats up the cancer cells and gets rid of cellular debris. And we know now that fasting has a profound effect on autophagy. And the other thing that fasting does that's kind of timely is it has a profound effect on the gut microbiome. You know, you've got, what, five pounds of bacteria living in your gut, a, a trillion creatures right. that protect you and provide incredible, importantly, nutrition. And, and there's, there's a thousand strains of these bacteria. And they work in competition with each other to maintain balance. And when you go on a fast, you actually reboot that gut microbiome, which is often disrupted because of antibiotic treatment or because of poor diet and lifestyle choices, the use of sugar, the use of salt, the use of oil, all profoundly can affect the gut microbiome and make you vulnerable to disease and debility and gut leakage, which can trigger autoimmune disease, et cetera. Well, fasting is like rebooting the hard drive on a computer. So you fast, you get this major recalibration. And then when you go back to eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet, and there's SOS is the international symbol of danger, but it also stands for salt, oil, and sugar. These are chemicals that are added to our food that make us fat, sick, and miserable. So if you go back on the diet without those chemicals and without the animal foods, what happens a whole plant food SOS-free diet, you get a different microbial balance. The microbiome changes because of what you feed it. 
Those five pounds of creatures that live in your gut are living creatures that are eating, drinking, and defecating inside you right now. Think about that. A trillion creatures pooing inside your gut right now. And what they poo in your gut is dependent on what you feed them. If you feed them soluble fiber, their natural diet, they feed you fertilizer, vitamin K, and essential nutrients. You feed them animal foods, <clears throat> excuse me, like meat, fish, fowl, eggs, and dairy products. They're going to give you chemicals like TMA, which becomes trimethylamine oxidase, and it's going to irritate your vessels and lead to heart disease and problems. So what you shove in your mouth profoundly affects the trillion creatures living in your gut. So you want to make sure you're feeding them the things that they're going to thrive on, that they're going to do well on. So let me, I've asked this question to Dr. Michael Gregg. I've asked this to uh, T. Colin Campbell also. Where, how the hell do we get so wrong with feeding people and nutrition? Where the hell do we go wrong? Well, it's the money. You know, people are addicts. How do we get so wrong with drug addiction and alcoholism? It's because the, these chemicals artificially stimulate dopamine in our brain that lead to pleasure. That's what dopamine does. The more dopamine, the more pleasure. So the reason drugs become so enticing is because they artificially stimulate dopamine production. Well, so does the sugar oil and the salt. It's the same neurochemical pathways associated with drug addiction. People have become addicted to the artificial stimulation of dopamine in their brain. It is a pleasure trap. Right. It's the hidden force that undermines health and happiness. It's why two-thirds of people are overweight. It's why metabolic syndrome has become epidemic. And it's why no matter what kind of healthcare system we put in place, it will get crushed unless we're willing to get back to the reason why people are sick. We have to deal with the causes of health. And that's diet, sleep, and exercise. We have to get back to eating a whole plant food SOS-free diet. In my opinion, we need to get engaged in regular aerobic exercise, build strength, flexibility, uh, and endurance. And we need to get enough sleep so that we can recover from the consequences of the stresses we can't, we can't avoid. Uh, the other thing we can do is we can use fasting. We can use intermittent fasting, that is limit the feeding window to eight hours a day uh, for people trying to lose weight or 12 hours a day for people trying to gain weight where we don't eat for the rest of the time. So you stop eating three hours before you go to bed, fast through the night. Every single day you're fasting for, for 16 hours. And the cumulative benefit of that fasting is thought to be beneficial. And then occasionally you may consider doing a long-term supervised water-only fast, which is what we do at the Trumark Health Center, where we help people fast for anywhere from five to 40 days in a controlled setting. And the combination of long-term occasional fasting and daily intermittent fasting along with a whole plant food SOS-free diet, exercise, and sleep, means people recover their health, they normalize their blood pressure, their blood sugar levels, they get out of pain, they, they lose the weight, and they're able to avoid the debility that causes people to suffer so much in the last decade or two of life. And it's also, by the way, where we spend about 80% of the healthcare costs right. treating people unsuccessfully right. for consequences of diet and lifestyle excess. Right, absolutely, absolutely. So let's throw, up, let's throw up the first flag, which I know you get. I've, I've listened to probably about 40 hours of your interviews over the last, last week. What about the people who are going to tell you, I don't want to starve. I don't want to, I'm, I'm not going to be able to do that because I, I don't want to starve. And, and I want to still have my, and you'll fill in the blank with whatever it is. I still want to be able to have that. Right. Well, so people also say, I'd rather die than quit smoking. Absolutely. And they do. Absolutely. And they say they'd rather drive than quit drinking. Right. And they do. And they say they'd rather die than give up their greasy, fatty, slimy, dead, decaying flesh, highly processed food diets, and they will. So for those patients, I just say that, you know, you want to do an experiment. You don't have to commit to doing it forever. In fact, in our practice, we only ask people to commit to diet and lifestyle changes for 50 years. 
So we ask them to make the diet less. And then after 50 years, if they want to go back to being sick and miserable, that's up to them. We that's just want to make sure we get our long-term outcome data. We're a limit right there. So we work, we, our approach really only appeals to the either people that are what we call appropriately motivated. Right. Now, that could be intelligent people looking to promote health because they, you know, they want to live a long and healthy life. Or it could be people that are motivated by pain, debility, or fear of death. Right. And those are the most um, motivated patients. They're debilitating pain. They're willing to do anything, even really dangerous and radical things like eat well or exercise right. or go to bed on time right. or, in, if necessary, fasting. And for those people that get healthy, usually they don't come back and say, oh, you know, when I was a drunk, I was much happier. I want to go back to being like with all my friends. No, they say, no, quitting alcohol was the best thing they ever did. Nobody comes back to me and says, oh, yeah, they were much happier when they were smoking. Right. You know, it was hard to quit, but they're, now they're glad they're free of it. And people don't come back and say, oh, you know, when I was all fat and sick on that nice, greasy SOS diet, I was, was much better. No, they don't. They say, no, it's the best thing they ever did. Is it easy? No, that's why. You can give people the information. Some people will make the change. Just think about alcohol. You go to somebody and you say, oh, you know how your life sucks? It's because you're a drunk. Do they go, oh, it's the alcohol? <laughs> I had no idea. Thank you so much. I won't drink anymore. And just, no, they say, mind your own business. Right. They don't want to hear about it. Right. So is it surprising that if people are addicted to the dietary pleasure trap and you share with them the idea that they could make radical diet changes, that they're going to have trouble with it? No, of course they're going to have trouble. It's a very, that's why if you can't do it with information alone, you come to a place like True North Health, we lock you up, we create a, a safe environment, and you go through it. You know, and Some people are there for a few days, some people are there for a few weeks, and it depends on what it takes for them to get well. And if you're, if you're motivated by pain, debility, and death, it doesn't seem so overwhelming to have to make these radical dietary changes. Yeah, isn't it amazing that, uh, first of all, the website is healthpromoting.com for the True North Health Center, healthpromoting.com. I'll leave a link down there. Isn't it amazing that that eating well, exercising, and going on a fast on a regular basis is seen as radical? Well, it is radical because radical comes from the word radicus, or it means root or cause. Right. And going on a diet and lifestyle change is dealing with the cause, the reason why you're overweight or developing disease of dietary excess. And so it is radical, but you want radical if what your goal is, is long-term health. If you're looking for short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent behavior, maybe this isn't the place for you. If you're looking to actually get and stay healthy, then this can be really empowering information because it gives you a way that's actually documented, effective, and isn't dependent on pills, potions, powders, and magic treatments. It's all about healthful living. Absolutely. Absolutely. A uh, short time ago, we posted that the latest stats on America is that the average American is filling 15 prescriptions. The average American is filling 15 prescriptions a year. No one gets healthier on 15 prescriptions a year by any means. So yeah. 84, you guys opened up the True North Health Center and you go to a, and start thinking about doing a water fasting. How did that progression come about? And what are the most incredible things you've seen with people with the water? By the way, I've done water fasting. As you're going to say, the first two days stink after that. It's fantastic. Well, you know, what's interesting, we got involved with fasting because when I went to Australia, that's what I saw working to get sick people well. So right. I was at the, an osteopathic hospital. That that's all they did was fasting. And so I saw these people one after another getting well. And so I came back. There, there wasn't any question what we were going to be doing. Uh, and so we began fasting people right out of the gate. We were treating primarily hypertension and diabetes at, in those days. And we began to document what we were doing. And if you go on to a, 
our website, you can actually see the studies that we've published in peer-reviewed journals over the And we've treated a wide variety of conditions. Most recently, we did some work with lymphoma. We had a young woman with uh, follicular lymphoma that had come to the center. And she was 42 years old. It had stage 3 uh, follicular lymphoma. And, you know, they had done the excisional biopsy. They had tracked her really carefully at the medical school. It had progressed over a period of two years. Interestingly enough, her family physician, when she asked him about, is there anything she could do to get healthier to help her body deal with this cancer, had told her that diet didn't matter. She could eat whatever she wanted, that diet wasn't related to this type of cancer. And then she asked him about, what about fasting? And he said, no, that was criminal quackery. And she wasn't to have anything to do with that. So eventually she got bad. They don't use chemotherapy right away with follicular lymphoma because it doesn't work very well, causes a lot of side effects. So they usually defer. Eventually got bad enough. They sent her to the med school. The oncologist also told her that diet wasn't relevant to this condition, that she could eat whatever, you know, normal she, she wanted. And that, uh, yeah, fasting, he didn't know anything about fasting. But he was recommending chemotherapy. But anyway, despite that tremendous medical support, she decided to come to True North <laughs> Health Center. She, during that time, she went through 21 days of water-only fasting, 10 days of recovery, during which time her tumors completely disappeared. So she had externally palpated, palpable tumors, upper and lower extremity that completely disappeared. And when she went back to the oncologist and they did the follow-up CT scans, they found there had been dramatic reduction in these tumors, and that, but she still had a, some neutropenia, still had a, a low white count. And so he recommended some gentle chemotherapy. She decided not to do that. She continued with the diet. She had maintained a whole plant food SOS-free diet for six months, continued to uh, lose weight. She had gotten down and maintained her optimum weight, at which we did another follow-up. At this point, her white counts had completely normalized by a year. She had a whole body CT completely uh, in remission from cancer. And so we published a paper in the British Medical Journal, uh, Case Reports, on this, on this case. And then they said, would you please follow this patient for a few years? Because many, there is a small percentage of people that will go into spontaneous remission, and, and, but they tend to recur. And so if you could show that she had maintained long-term success, that would be really compelling. So we followed this woman for three years. And fortunately, she followed a, a whole plant food SOS-free diet, maintained the results, got followed data, completely in remission. In fact, now we have year four and we're working on year five right now, continues to do well. And we published a follow-up in British Medical Journal case reports on this, on this case. And since then, and since the publication of that, we've been treating a, a significant number of lymphoma patients. And we're now in the process of collecting long-term data on those patients. Because uh, what we want to do a cohort and then ultimately a clinical trial, we believe that this particular condition will respond well uh, to fasting and diet and lifestyle change. And it doesn't respond well to conventional therapy. So it's really an ideal condition because it's not considered unethical to defer treatment while people do something that actually works. Correct. 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 Question for you was that we all know it's common, not well, we all know, but it's common knowledge that, that olive oil is actually pretty good for you. So why would Well, actually, I would disagree. Olive oil Olive oil is less bad than some right. other oils because of its right. constituent. But something being less bad doesn't make it good. It just makes it less bad. There's no reason to add fractionated processed fats into the diet. You get all the essential fats you need from eating a whole diverse whole plant food diet. And some plant foods like avocado and nuts and seeds and flax, you know, flax seeds and walnuts are very rich in the omega-3 fatty acids that people are currently thinking is very important in terms of its anti-inflammatory effects and cognitive effects, et cetera. So there's no reason to have to add oil of any kind, including olive oil, virgin or not, 
in, into the into the diet. And you know, essentially, the, the, according to John McDougall, the fat you eat is the fat you wear. So if you want to use olive oil, rub it on your belly, and then when you're done, you can wash it off and not carry it around all week. But at nine calories per gram of highly fractionated food byproduct, you have little satiety feedback, a whole lot of calories and too much fat. So we don't use oil, we don't use sugar, you don't need to add sugar to the diet, you don't get sugar deficiency, and you don't need to add salt because the sodium you need is uh, contained in a, in a mineral-rich uh, plant food-based diet. Absolutely, absolutely. Part for you right here is a, is a great book. You have a great book out called The Pleasure Thank Trap, you. which helped me out. I stopped drinking uh, alcohol last year. And I went into from one dopamine rush to the second one, which I did not know I was even on until I got like chapter three or four of the book. And I started honking down sugar. Oh, yeah. Early. And I'm going to tell you, Doc, I am the justifier of all justifiers. I was eating the organic stuff. I was eating the vegan stuff. And it was all high sugar stuff. And I was thinking, I'm, I think I'm doing the best I can but I'm substituting one addiction for the other. I read the book. I go through this. I said, son of a bitch. I just, I just, I, I exchanged addictions. Talk about the pleasure trap for sure. But I do think that you stepped in the right direction because as bad as sugar is, alcohol is actually a bigger short-term problem. And so stepping off the alcohol is the first step getting off the sugar, which is a you know, very common craving for people as they quit alcohol. They notice. In fact, a lot of what people really like about alcohol is probably the physiological effect of the sugar and alcohol. Because, you know, it, it, it's, it's also very high sugar food, just also has the alcohol, which causes all kinds of problems. Think about drinking. People, like when you smoke, you get smoker's face, right? You get that premature wrinkling that occurs because the cross-linked collagen tissue from the free radicals. But, you know, 80% of smokers never get lung cancer. Right. So does smoking protect against lung cancer? No. What it does is it kills you from heart disease before you live long enough to grow your tumors, because of the damage of the free radicals. Well, alcohol is your another really rich source of free radicals. And so when you, the peroxidation of alcohol bathes the body in frac, which is why people get cirrhosis of the liver. Right. The liver is the detoxifying organ of the body. It's impacted by the peroxidation of alcohol. It tries to protect your body from it. And as a consequence, you get fatty infiltrate and scar tissue that occurs from alcohol. So alcohol and tobacco are both excellent sources of free radicals, which is why you prematurely age when you drink alcohol and smoke cigarettes. So don't do that. Well, sugar has its own challenges. It may not be as short-term consequential as the alcohol and the cigarettes are, but long-term, it definitely has consequences, not the least of which is the commonly recognized effects of obesity and tooth decay and immune suppression, but also has a profound effect on the microbiome that live in your gut. Because when you feed them somebody a high-sugar diet, they get a different type of mic microbiome than people that are on a whole plant food diet. Absolutely. Absolutely. So can we quote you right here? Dr. Alan Goldhammer said that uh, smoking is protective against lung cancer. We can quote I'm you. Sure, I'm sure they'll be doing that. I'm sure they'll be doing that for me. Absolutely. Doc, uh, let's talk about... Uh, well, yeah, but you have to, if you say that, you got to acknowledge that statistics don't lie, but liars use statistics. Absolutely correct. Absolutely correct. Talk about for a moment, my, my kids won't eat the vegetables. Right. So the reality is that when you've trained your little kids to be addicts, uh, there's a period of time where you have to help them get free of their addiction. And so, you know, if you feed your kids, you know, highly processed, refined carbohydrates, they will develop an addiction to that. Just as if you gave them beer and wine and, and uh, cocaine, they would eventually become addicted to that and they wouldn't want to have other substances. But if you 
get them off that addiction by feeding them a whole plant food diet. Eventually they neuroadapt and then they'll start to enjoy whole plant foods again. But you know, it's a really serious problem because we basically train our little kids to be drug addicts. They, we teach them the way they should deal with every problem in life is a drug. If they have a headache, they need a drug. If they have a backache, they need a drug. They have some kind of problem, they need a pill, potion, powder. And you know, then when they're 16 and they go to a party, we tell them, well, just say no. You know? And we are shocked when they don't just say no, despite the fact we've trained them their entire life that the way you should deal with life's issues is with drugs. Daddy comes home from work, he needs to have a drink to relax. Mommy's anxious, she needs to take a pill. So, you know, that's their, what they've been mirrored. And what, what, how do you eat? You eat all the highly processed refined carbohydrates because we're too busy driving two hours a day to a job. We hate to work with people we despise for a company we detest to make things we don't believe in, to make money we don't need because we believe that we're unhappy because we have a short-term pleasure-seeking self-indulgent deficiency. And if we could just engage in more short-term pleasure-seeking behavior, then we'd finally be happy. The problem is happiness and pleasure are not the same neurochemical events. Pleasure is about dopamine. The more pleasure, the more dopamine. Happiness is more serotonin-based. And so no matter how much dopamine you stimulate, you're not going to get happy. So getting the overall balance of your life experience to be highly positive requires a number of interventions, not the least of which is health. Right. Very, very difficult to experience the overall balance of your life as highly positive, i.e. happy, if you're unhealthy. Correct. And so that's where some discipline around diet and lifestyle come in. If your goal is to be happy, you've got to get healthy. If your goal is to engage in as much pleasure as possible, drug addicts are experienced at it, but they never become happy. Absolutely. Absolutely. The health, the site, uh, once again, is uh, healthpromoting.com. Highly recommend you all go there. Doc, I'm going to leave you with this last part, and it's uh, we ask all of our guests. We have changed the, the definition of longevity to the act and intent of being so healthy that you leave something great behind by what you've done today. What's going to be the thing you're going to leave behind? What's the dent you're going to leave in the universe? You know, healthy life expectancy, from my viewpoint, is much more important than life expectancy. How long you live is going to largely be determined by genetics and luck. But how well you live can be profoundly affected by the choices you make about diet, sleep, exercise, and, and fasting. So, you know, our, our focus is teaching people that health is a result of healthful living, and healthful living involves diet, sleep, and exercise. So that's really, you know, the message that we want to convey. And I would just mention, if any of your listeners have a question uh, that didn't get answered today, and it doesn't get answered if they read our book, The Pleasure Trap, we offer a free phone conversation with me. If people go to our website, complete the registration forms, which gets us their medical history, they can call me. I'll be happy to talk to them without charge in terms of whether the approach that we're taking might be relevant to them or if we can refer them to some place perhaps closer to, to them than we are that offers this type of an approach, we'd be happy to do that. Absolutely awesome. Absolutely awesome. His name is Dr. Uh, Alan Goldhammer with the True North Health Centers. Uh, a book I recommend you read also is The Pleasure Trap. It'll open your eyes and you'll say, son of a bitch, how come no one told me about this before? Doc, we appreciate your expertise, your insight, and your love. Keep on keeping your, your lit, uh, fire lit and your bonfire glowing, man. Pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Easy enough, right? Doc, I appreciate your time. That was fantastic. My pleasure. Nice talking to you. Thanks much. Mm -hmm.